Hi, I'm Meredith Roden, and I'm the host of the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Welcome back to Getting to the Bottom of It. This is our first podcast of the decade, and I'm here with our academics editor, Jared Gans, to talk about a very special anniversary this semester. Uh, This is the the fifth year anniversary of the Science and Engineering Hall being built. It was a very expensive project, and Jared worked with a reporter to see how that investment is paying off. So what was one of the most common things that professors said to you about the facilities? Professors felt across the board that the research endeavors have been greatly helped by the creation and running of this building. Courtney Smith, a biology professor, said that the building allows her to store an animal housing room in SEH's basement, which allows her to do her work. She also said that SEH has pure deionized water in all sinks that help make the research process more efficient and more quick, which was not available at her last location. Can you explain for people who aren't maybe aren't familiar with the facilities in places like Bell Hall, Um, or other places where the sciences used to be housed, what those facilities are like. So academic halls like Bell Hall are considerably older than SEH is, and they have very much been worn down. Um, And many faculty often say that those types of facilities are are not up to date enough to accommodate them for the work they need to do for teaching classes and for conducting the research. So other than research, uh, one thing that professors do is teach students. So how have students been impacted by the building of this hall? Ken Corman, the Associate Dean of Research and Graduate Studies for the School of Engineering and Applied Science, said that because SEH houses multiple schools, CIS, the Columbian College of Arts and Sciences, the Milken Institute School of Public Health, and the School of Medicine and Health Sciences, This allows for collaborative education by students. He said he has seen students in engineering courses approach biology faculty to discuss their ideas for their senior design projects. And he said he also constantly sees students spending time studying together in common areas. And that is one of the favorite locations on campus for students to study. Well, thanks, Jared, for checking in on how this building has progressed over the last five years. Thanks for having me. Now that we're officially in 2020, I'm here with our Health and Sciences editor, Shannon Millard, to take a look back at 2019 and the Department of Education complaints. So, Shannon, first, can you tell me what those complaints were and when they were reported? We found out in February that the uh, Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, which is the branch that investigates complaints filed against academic institutions, um, found that... uh, launch an investigation into age discrimination. And when we uh, we filed a FOIA request for a copy of the complaint, and the complainant said that they were retaliated against for protesting a culture of age discrimination in which um, older professors um, bullied um, younger and non-tenured research and clinical faculty. So that was the first this year. And then there were two disability discrimination complaints that um, the OCR launched an investigation into in February, and we found out about them in March. So those are all the complaints for 2019. And how does this compare to previous years that this has been tracked? Uh, So this year we had three complaints that were filed against GW, and between 2015 and 2018 there were 24 total cases brought against the university, 
and um, of those 24, only one resulted in corrective action or found a violation. And that, in that case, the uh, Department of Education found that um, GW's websites lacked accommodations for individuals with disabilities, particularly those with visual impairments. I was also wondering, just like year to year, this year we only had three, Is that's relatively low. Uh, so in 2015, there were 10 cases brought against GW of alleged discrimination, whereas in 2019, we had three cases. So overall, there's been about a 70% decrease. So what accounts for that drop? Um, so I spoke to some experts who specialize in either Title IX policies or uh, discrimination law. And they said there were a variety of reasons why there could have been a decrease. And it's difficult to pinpoint exactly which one was the case. Um, some say that an increase in education surrounding sexual assault prevention, Title IX policy, and bystander intervention could... Um, establish a clear standard of conduct for all students on campus, and also education about consequences associated with um, violating uh, discrimination policies um, can also have played a role in decreasing the number. Um, however, um, I had a few other experts say that some policies that um, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, has been proposing for Title IX investigation policies um, could deter people from uh, reporting instances of discrimination. So um, it could be um, several factors that could have played into a decrease in complaints, and experts have mostly been saying it's difficult to identify exactly which and to what degree they've been affecting the number. If experts had a couple of different ideas, did university officials have a better idea of what exactly caused this decrease? Uh, so we uh, got a response from Caroline LeGarrett-Brown, the Vice Provost for Diversity, Equity, and Community Engagement, and she said that the number of complaints filed with the OCR each year is pretty unpredictable and that the number can't easily be attributed to a specific factor or a specific set of factors. And she said um, maybe one example of why in previous years and there might have been more complaints and she said it could be possible that one individual could file more than one complaint with the OCR and each grievance would be filed as a separate complaint and she said um, despite the fact that there could be one individual filing multiple complaints or um, the fact that the number of complaints is rather unpredictable from year to year she uh, said that um, the university has been taking measures to ensure that all students are have resources to go to if they face an incident of discrimination or bias on campus. So some examples that she gave of that include um, revising the student co code of student conduct, code of student conduct, and uh, reworking the equal opportunity, non-discrimination, anti-harassment, and non-retaliation policy, among many others, especially those concerning um, Title IX investigatory policies. And um, she also said that officials have developed in the past couple of years a bias incident reporting website. So essentially individuals on campus who have um, experienced incidents of bias or discrimination can um, submit a report to the website um, that is subject to review by a panel um, called the Bias Incident Response Team to review. And she added that officials are regularly looking at um, ways to educate students about resources they have access to, like the Title IX office and the Office of Ethics, if they ever encounter any problems. Well, thanks, Shannon, for talking to us today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me, Meredith. So for our first culture segment of the new year, I'm here with our culture editor, Sydney Lee, to talk about a new concert series. If you love the Tiny Desk concert, you'll love these, the Tiny Dorm concert. 
So can you tell me how these concerts inside one student's dorm got started? Yeah, so it's great to be back. Happy New Year. So sophomore Gatika Meshawari started her own version of NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts, like you said, and she decided to call it Tiny Dorm Concerts, where she literally will host uh, student bands in the corner of her FSK dorm room. Um, so she's had one so far, and they had a great turnout, and she's got a lot more scheduled for this semester. So this is obviously very limited spacing, but can just anyone get in? Yeah, so if anyone sees it either on the Instagram or hears from a friend, they're all welcome into her dorm room. So they really jam them in there. <laughs> so who has already performed at these concerts and who is scheduled for this year? So the first concert that she hosted was last semester. Freshman Adam Goxby performed as well as the band Pine Walls. And they had great turnout, about 20 to 30 people. And then for this semester, she already has four dates planned, the first one being January 25th. And are these local bands, or are they people that she already knew? Like, how did she get in contact with these performers? So all of them are GW students or student bands, and she just gets in touch with people in the music community through that way. Anyone can perform, as well as bands will also DM the account and ask to perform. What's the drive behind these concerts? Is it really for the enjoyment of music, or is she selling tickets? So it's actually, yeah, just for the pure enjoyment. She said she wanted to meet more people in the music community, and she thought this was a great way to do that. So she's not charging or anything. Anyone can come, no tickets. And yeah, she just wants to connect different artists and cool people. All right, well, thanks for talking with us, Sydney. Yeah, thanks so much. That's all for this week. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by Meredith Roten and features culture editor Sydney Lee. This podcast is produced by assistant photo editor Ariel Bader and podcast host Meredith Roten. Music is produced by Oak Studio. A special thanks to Jared Gans and Shannon Millard for joining us. <laughs>